This talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So this is by Izumi Shikibu. My path leads from darkness to darkness, lit only by the far-off moon at the edge of the mountains. So good morning and welcome. It's nice to see so many people here today. It's really nice. Um, Hojin Sensei had to leave a little bit early this week. She's up at the monastery. Uh, she sends her love to everyone. Uh, she'll be back uh, after session in, in early October. So my name is Yunen. Uh, I use he and him pronouns. And I'm a senior lay student here. Uh, I'm the office manager as well here at the temple. So this poem is, as I said, it's by Izumi Shikibu. I've, I've used several of her poems before. I really... Um, I really love her stuff. I feel a, a sort of affinity. She was, as I've said before, um, she lived in the 10th century in Japan. Uh, she was a, uh, an attendant. Actually, she was the lady-in-waiting for the empress at the, the Heian court in so 10th, 11th century in Japan. And she had a, a pretty tumultuous life. Uh, in terms of what was happening politically and in terms of romantically her relationships. And she wrote about all of this in her poetry. And she would also from time to time retire and spend time in, in Buddhist monasteries. She considered becoming a nun, but she never did apparently. Uh, in this poem, it's actually, uh, I think of it as, a, as an autumn poem, although it, there's no obvious sign that it's an autumn. Maybe I'm just missing it. In a lot of Japanese poetry, there are season markers that are, that are quite subtle, so perhaps I'm just not getting it. But it's also thought to, it's also said to be her, her death poem. Uh, she wrote this on her, on her deathbed, it said. And I, I feel it, it captures the reason, it was just speaking to me, um, Lately, I think it's partly the, the time of year when there's a little bit of chill in the air and a little bit of darkness, and you can feel the darkness coming. Um, and it's, it's kind of sweet, but it's also a little bit um, unsettling. And that's, I think that's a very important part of, of Zen practice, uh, spiritual practice in general, actually. So I wanted to use it as a, a, a bit of a springboard to talk about working with difficult or negative emotions. And there are lots of difficult and negative emotions, but I think I wanted to, to, to really focus on a little bit um, sadness, grief, loneliness. Um, and one of the residents asked me what this what this talk was going to be about this morning, and I said, "You know, I actually don't know." Even though I, I wrote it, I think it's I was gonna, I, I I was thinking, and I thought well, maybe it's a little bit about death, uh, which means it's also about life. 
Um, so many of us come to practice, um, not everyone, but many people come to practice after, um, when we realize after perhaps a lifetime of trying that we can't outrun our pain, our sadness, our desperation maybe, our darkness. And this is a good thing to realize this because we can't. In, in actually, you know, in traditional Buddhist cosmology, um, I talk about this a lot because it, it, it really resonates for me more, the more I practice. But if it, you know, the six worlds, if, if this doesn't resonate with you, just think of it as psychological states or something. It's not really a dogma. But in the traditional Buddhist cosmology, there's six realms of existence. The hell realm, the preda, our hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, the human realm, the Asura realm of the, the fighting gods, and the, the divine realms. And it's actually considered better to be born in the human realm than in one of the divine realms. There's lots of divine realms. Actually, uh, there's, uh, in, in many accounts, there's 26 of them. It's very specific. So there's, um, well, I could spend a lot of time on that, but I won't. <laughs> the, the point is, is that um, in the divine realm, the the gods and goddesses or the, the beings there, it's very difficult for them to practice because they're preoccupied with their own their pleasure, their own pleasure, their beauty, strength, power. They live very long lives, and they don't really come face to face with the sort of harsh realities of of reality until the very end. Um, and it's, it's often said that when they do come to the end of their lives, because in, in this Buddhist cosmology, nothing lives forever, not even the gods, although they live for billions of, of years in some of these realms. Uh, it's said that when they come to the end of their life, they suffer terribly because they've never confronted this before. And, and they often then enter one of the bad migrations the hells, the preda realms, the animal realms. And the, the human realm is said to be different. It has a, a mix of light and dark, uh, joy and suffering. And it's said to be very favorable for, for practice. It's sort, of, uh, it's sort of a Goldilocks realm. It's not too good and it's not too bad. Um, it's just right. You know, we have the opportunity to practice difficult mind states without being completely overwhelmed by them. And we can practice them. It's not easy, and it's also not difficult, but we have to practice them. You know, we, we tend to, to see often um, these negative or difficult mind states as, as obstacles or something that needs to be changed or fixed. I was, I was remembering, I was thinking of my own life, my own experience, um, so I grew up for uh, a number of years in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is very different than New York. Um, and I was, I was a bit of a troublemaker when I was in my, around 13, 14. I think many of my neighbors considered me a, a, you know, a Satan worshiper, maybe, or a, a delinquent. Um, and to be fair, <laughs> it wasn't entirely wrong. 
<laughs> I kind of deserved it. But um, I, I was kind of off the rails in any case. I, you know, my parents seemed to think that, even my parents seemed to think there was something wrong with my brain chemicals. So, you know, I got, I got prescribed these antidepressants very early on. But this was before Prozac, before they had... I had to take this, uh, this foul-tasting gray syrup that I would have to like, administer with a dropper. And it, uh, there was a warning with it. It said, don't, don't mix with alcohol. So, of course, as soon as I could, I mixed it with alcohol. And I, I remember I was in the supermarket once, um, and I lost control of my foot, my leg. My leg wanted to go in that direction, and I wanted to go in this direction. And I kept trying to make my leg go back in the right direction, and it wouldn't. And I kept doing it, and it wouldn't. And so I was trying to get out of this supermarket. It's just like, and people were just staring at me, understandably. And you know, I, my foot was like dragging on the on the floor, and I, I eventually it was so you know I started bleeding, and those I was I kind of dragging this trail of blood with my foot out of the supermarket. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> the reason the reason I tell this story was that I I. Um, I, I felt I just was getting this sense from myself and from everyone else that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. And I remember this friend of my, uh, a friend of mine in, in school, Stuart. His mother gave me this book by by Alan Watts called um, "The Book on the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are." And I was just mostly I was just touched that anyone would give me a book, you know. And I I don't remember the the details of it, um, but. Um, I do remember it that I got some sense that out of it that maybe I wasn't fundamentally broken. Maybe there was another way of seeing this life. You know, we uh, we often do practice with the idea of trying to become a better person, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. We should. But, but fundamentally, you know, the teachings say we aren't broken. We don't need to be fixed. In Zazen, sometimes there's a, there's a, we want to fidget or, you know, get to a better situation. And that's why it's so important that we just practice being still and present. We don't need a better situation, actually, a more enlightened state of mind. Um, Often when we start practice, we, we expect that, you know, this will help me with maybe some stress or relationships or I'll, I'll, it'll make me feel better. And, and don't get me wrong, it usually does. But there's an aspect in which sometimes it, it gets harder with practice because we're starting to see ourselves, see parts of ourselves that we didn't see before. And I, I often think sometimes it's just that we see what we're able to see. There's no limit to what we can see, but we only see what we're able to see. And sometimes as we get a little bit larger, we're able to see things that are difficult that we couldn't see before. And that's also good. My path leads from darkness to darkness, lit only by the far-off moon at the edge of the mountains. I spoke earlier yeah, I've been speaking about the, the 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 value of negative mind states, but even you know, even to speak of the value of them in that way is is a kind of subtle form of aggression. 
because the value is in with regard to some reference system that they can be used. You know, it's it's we ha- we're so impatient to get through these difficult stretches to get to something else, something better, and we miss what they are, as we treat them as if they were a means to some other end, but they're not. They are what they are, completely. When there's sadness, there's just sadness. When there's darkness, it's just dark. It fills the past, present, and future. It fills the ten directions. In in Christian mysticism, people sometimes speak of, um, I guess it's a stage that, that people are said to go through called the dark night of the soul. This this phrase comes from St. John of the Cross, who is a, a Catholic Spanish mystic in the, the 1500s. And uh, Evelyn Underhill, who uh, she lived in the, the early 20th century, she wrote a wonderful book on, on mysticism that, that Daito Roshi was always very fond of and had us study from time to time. She speaks of this dark night as a, as a stage that's encountered pretty far along, actually, once you get fairly deep into it. <laughs> I think maybe deep enough so that you can't go back is the way it seems to work, because otherwise we would go back. And she talks about how the, the seeker or the mystic, or however you want to call it, uh, the person who is searching, uh, they encounter the absolute, the divine, the nature of being, whatever it is that you want to, whatever label you want to put on it. And she says, you know, that's, that's great at first. But then she says, during the time in which illuminated consciousness is fully established, the self, as a rule, is perfectly content. Why wouldn't you be? Believing that its vision of eternity, its intense and loving consciousness of God, it has reached the goal of its quest. And she continues, sooner or later, however, psychic fatigue sets in. The state of illumination begins to break up. The negative consciousness appears and shows itself as an overwhelming sense of darkness and deprivation. This sense is so deep and so strong that it inhibits all consciousness of the transcendent and plunges the self into the state of negation and misery, which is called the dark night. This is also called, in, in some Christian mystical theology, the, uh, the via negativa, the, the way of negation. It's an approach of, of saying that, that we can't really say what the ultimate or the divine is, except by negating what it's not, negating any characteristics or attributes, emptying out all conceptions of the divine. In the, which is really the heart of the, the Prajnaparamita. You know, we chanted the Heart Sutra this morning. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. No color, sound, smell, taste, touch, phenomenon. No field of sight, no field of consciousness, nor no four noble truths, and so on and so on. I'm thinking, I was thinking also though, it's, it's maybe not entirely, it can be helpful to speak of this dark night of the soul, but it's also kind of stirring up trouble. You know, it makes it sound like this rarefied, kind of highfalutin, perhaps a little bit romantic thing. It, it makes it sound like a thing. It's not actually a thing. It doesn't actually exist. 
and where would you find it? It's like, <laughs> I was thinking you could get, you say, oh, I'm sorry, I was kind of a jerk last night. I was going to the dark night of the soul. <laughs> and we will latch on to anything. All dharmas are forms of emptiness. And it's not, it's not so clear cut, actually, either. And the way that Underhill's speaking of it, she talks about it as this stage. She has names for the stages before the illuminative stage, and then the dark night of the soul, and then comes the unitive stage. And these maps can be helpful, but they're not, they also can be unhelpful. My experience is not like that. I'm just, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I feel like I'm all over the map. I have these, in my experience, these, these darknesses recur from time to time. Sometimes there's a trigger, it's a, uh, maybe a, a grief or a loss, but other times I can't seem to find any reason for it. Sometimes they're, it, it's very brief. It's like a, a sort of Arctic summer night. The sun barely dips below the horizon and it comes up again. Or sometimes it's deep darkness for, for a long time. It seems like it won't ever end. The important thing, I think, is just to keep practicing. We have to have that. Sometimes people in the Christian or or Judeo-Christian tradition speak of, uh, they use the words of the the 23rd Psalm, the valley of the shadow of death. Though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death. And then it continues, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You can sort of take refuge in, in the divine. We, we don't really have that in this tradition. So, sorry. But there is, we have to provide our own light to some extent. You know, Shugen Roshi speaks a lot the last couple of years about faith in practice. And it's really not faith in anything external. It's faith in your own capacity to realize yourself. The moon that I spoke of in the beginning, she says, only the far-off moon at the edge of the mountains. That's our own sort of trust in our own nature. It seems very far off sometimes. So here's another poem. Foolish and stubborn, when can I rest? Lonely and poor, this life. At twilight, I return again from the village carrying an empty bowl. So this is by uh, Ryokan, who is an 18th century Japanese Zen monk. He lived most of his life as a, as a poor hermit. Um, he completed his training, was transmitted to, but he, he didn't want to be a teacher or an abbot or run a monastery. He just wanted to, he ended up, uh, his life was spent uh, making daily rounds, begging for food, and playing with the children in the local village, and then writing poetry. He says, lonely, poor, foolish, tired. And he has an empty bowl. It seems like he's not even a very good beggar. This may not be how we imagine a Zen master, a realized person to be. Maybe it's a little bit too relatable. And we want to escape our loneliness, our shortcomings, our ordinariness. We want to be 
virtuous, imperturbable, extraordinary, wise. That's, those are, that's a good aspiration. But it's not the whole picture. I was imagining if to transpose this poem into every day. So imagine, you know, get rid of the, the sort of romantic furniture of, of 18th century Japan and imagine coming out of the subway after a difficult day at work. You know, it's deep autumn. You're not getting along with your coworkers. You're wondering, is this really even, why am I doing this job? You feel distant from your partner, or maybe you wish you had a partner. You're worried that you can't pay the bills, worried that you're gaining weight, worried about your health, maybe a family member, and the world's just a complete mess. Of course we want to be free of that. But we imagine that our freedom is somewhere else, where the conditions that are binding us are no longer present. But if our freedom is elsewhere, it can't help us right here, right now, which is really all that we have. And so we have to find our freedom right here. And in the Dogen, in the fascicle that we're, the 13th century Zen master that we're studying this on, he has a fascicle on the moon. He says, the thusness of thus is the moon in water is the moon in water. It is water thusness, moon thusness, thusness within, within thusness. Thus does not mean like something. Thus means exactly. Buddha's true Dharma body is the as it is of open sky. This open sky is the as it is of Buddha's true Dharma body. Because it is Buddha's true Dharma body, the entire earth, the entire universe, all phenomena, all appearances are open sky. Hundreds of grasses in myriad forms, each appearing as it is, are nothing but the Buddha's true Dharma body, thusness of the moon in water. Water, thusness, moon, thusness, loneliness, thusness, poor, thusness, tired, thusness, Subway thusness, boring job thusness, money troubles thusness. Nothing but the Buddha's true Dharma body. It doesn't mean we shouldn't take action or we should become passive. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to change circumstances for the better. But when you do, don't overlook taking action thusness. Don't overlook changing circumstances, thusness. Ungodoyo, whose name we chanted this morning, said, if you want to attain the matter of thusness, you must be a person of thusness. Already being a person of thusness, why worry about the matter of thusness? (laughs) You could also say right here, right now, this is the resplendent pure land of the Buddha Shakyamuni. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, it says, the Bodhisattva Bodhisattva who lives in the inconceivable liberation, which is me and you, 
can put the king of mountains, Sumeru, which is so high, so great, so noble, and so vast, into a mustard seed. They can perform this feat without enlarging the mustard seed and without shrinking Mount Sumeru. In a single particle of dust and a single thought, the entire universe of the ten directions, mountains and rivers and the great earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, rocks, pebbles, and tiles, the heavens, the hells, the worlds, the longed-for lands. All of it is in a worried or anxious thought, a cranky thought, a happy thought, a stupid thought. Dogen continues, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, our body, mind, and environs are also within the moon. The coming and going and birth and death is also the moon. The entire entire world of the ten directions is the up and down, the left and right, of the moon. Everyday activity at this moment is hundreds of grasses brilliant in the moon. The mind of ancestors brilliant in the moon. Everyday activity, eating meals, answering the phone, making small talk. How wonderful. It's beyond the ordinary and beyond the extraordinary. Hundreds of grasses brilliant in the moon. I was, and I was thinking of my my friend, the uh, whose mother gave me the the Alan Watts book that I mentioned earlier. I learned in um, uh, maybe a year ago that that during COVID he uh, he killed himself. He shot himself, and I was. You know, I was no longer really close to him, but I was still in contact, and it affected me, for sure. I kept thinking about him, you know, why did he do it? And I I don't think I'll ever know. Of course, I have lots of thoughts. Was it a failure of character, and maybe some medical condition that was undiagnosed? just an act of violence, a cry for help, a result of our gun pandemic. In some sense, maybe it's all of those and none of them. But it happened. I think it must, I can only imagine, it must have made sense from whatever mind state he was within at that time. And he was more than that single action. Once the Huineng, uh, the sixth ancestor, was speaking to one of his students, Nanyue, and he said, at the end of their discussion, he said, I am thus, you are thus, and the ancestors in India also are thus. So I just wanted to end this with a few questions. Will our life be a tunnel between two vague clarities? Or will it be a clarity between two dark triangles? In the end, won't death be an endless kitchen? But do you know where death comes from? From above or below? From microbes or from walls? From wars or from winter? So please appreciate 
your precious human life. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.